in the subway in London. It started some years ago. There was a sign that they put up called Mind the Gap. Mind the Gap they put next to the subway station because there apparently is a, well, I've seen it. There's a six to eight inch margin in between the, the landing here uh, and where the train is. It, about 60 years ago, it used to, there was a sign that used to say, please stand clear of the oncoming train. <laughs> well, that sounded a little unnerving, so they just put a, a sign with a symbol that says, mind the gap. And what they mean is, be careful when you're leaving the place where you're standing to go into the place where you're going. The Romans, ancient Rome, used to put a large stone on a threshold in between two rooms. Uh, and they, because of the size of the stone, as you left one room, you could never just step over the top of it. You had to actually mount the stone and swing yourself over to go into the other room. They were trying to symbolize that you are leaving one space and going to another. They called that stone lemon. We get our word liminal from that stone. It means there is a threshold, a space in between the place where you were and the place where you're going. The Romans had a god they called Janus um, who was the god of transition, the god of the gates, the god of doors. They said it was the god of beginnings and endings, of warfare and peace. And so this god had two faces. One face was looking back and the other face was looking forward. The Romans were trying to capture a season in life that is very much like the season we're in, both as a family, as individuals, and even as a nation. I've talked with many of our members and we've talked about, you know, it feels like something is changing and old structures and old belief systems are being let go, but we don't really know where they're going yet. And I've talked to leaders who feel like they want to do something that is bold and brilliant because they want to prove to their people that it's going to be okay, but you don't know where things are going. And so it's really hard for you to cast vision when you can't see but just a few inches in front of you in terms of time. Does that make sense? Well, I've discussed, does it make sense? This is a conversation, remember. Well, I've, 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 looked, I've looked into this and, uh, and it turns out that this happens every so often in history and every time it happens, the symptoms are the same. There is high volatility in the markets and in life. There is great social upheaval and disruption. The public becomes angry at the leaders because they can't keep us happy and safe. That's what leaders are supposed to do. There's this gigantic decommit. People start letting go of previous commitments. We were in a store just a couple days ago when we heard the guy behind the counter just had back surgery. He's got a brace like this on his back. I'm like, why are you working? And he's like, we can't find employees. 
Nobody wants to work right now. People are letting go of old commitments and structures and relationships. In this period, uh, there's a lot of anger, frustration at the way things used to be. There's a call for revolution. I'm not just describing the last two years in the big um, cities. I'm not talking about the riots too. I'm talking about this happens every so often whenever we hit this liminal state. It is a period of tremendous threat and opportunity. The threat is that we're vulnerable. We'll follow hucksters or charlatans who come along and promise instant relief. We'll follow anybody and vote for anybody who promises to make our life better right now. We're vulnerable. But it's a moment of opportunity because it means new things are being born. We don't know what they are yet, but they're being formed. There are leaders right now in the making that we haven't seen yet. They're young. And if they're full of Christ, and they're humble, if they're teachable, and if they're courageous enough to step into leadership right after a period in history when every leader they've seen has gotten slaughtered, if they're courageous enough to lead right now, new things and beautiful things will happen in this period. The key is to linger on the threshold, in the gap, without panicking. The key is to listen without having to judge, to love people without trying to persuade them. The key is to start letting go of some convictions but hold firm to the dogma that we still know is true. The key is to risk being thought irrelevant in order to stay eternal and say things that are eternal. But this is a hard place, church, for us to sit. Some of us in the family keep looking back. We keep talking about the way things used to be as if it was all perfect back then. We romanticize the way things were. We sound like the Israelites saying, oh, we used to eat around pots of meat when we were in Egypt. <laughs> Dude, you were a slave. Have you forgotten that ginormous fact? There were some good things about what happened, but they were not all good. Others in our family keep leaning forward by making bold projections, trying to predict where things are going to go, trying to hurry them. The moment we see something dying, we want to let go of it and latch on to what's coming next because we're afraid. It was like a month, two months maybe, after COVID shut every, well, it wasn't COVID, after the leadership shut everything down, it, I started seeing articles 
about what's next, what's going to be the next wave, how's this all going to end? And I get it. What we were trying to do was we were trying to predict where it was going to go so we would be safe and familiar on those paths. So we either look back and moan <laughs> or we look forward and try to predict the thing nobody seems able to do is to stay on that threshold for as long as it takes. I have a word for us in this transition. And the word is amen. I'm reading through Paul's epistles one day two weeks ago and I hit 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And I hit a passage I was very familiar with, but this time I read it in the shadow of every funeral, every surgery, every session, every bit of bad news that I'd heard in the last week. And this is what I read in Paul. He said, for in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, it has never been yes and no. It has always been only yes. Then verse 20, get this one. He says, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are all yes in Christ. And so, through Christ, we say, Amen. I've never read that passage the way I read it just a couple weeks ago. It takes place after Paul's trying to defend his integrity. He's talking about people that don't believe in him, and all he's saying to the Corinthians is, my integrity is like that of God. My character is like after God. And then all of a sudden, you guys, right in the middle of that defense, Paul kicks it up to a higher level. And he starts talking about the character of God in ways that maybe you've never thought about. He pulls back the curtains and lets you peer into the economy of God. He lets you see how things work at the table where God is seated. You don't get to do that very often. And if I'm reading him right, he says it works like this. God will make a promise. Christ will ratify it and say yes. And then the people of God, that's you, will ratify it again and say amen. It's almost like our lives take the shape not of things that happen and not even of decisions we make, 
They take the shape of the promises God has made. A.W. Tozer said, you can decide whatever you want to decide, but remember this. You're like a passenger on a cruise ship. And after you've decided what you want to do for the day and you moved all the deck chairs, you've made your plans. Your course is determined by the promises God makes. Sooner or later, if you are in Christ, your lives take the shape of God's promises. And as soon as you recognize that, you can let off the gas. Because until you recognize that, you'll strive and pretend with overambition. We're going to make something happen. There's over 7,400 promises in the Bible cover to cover that are made from God to people. And your tendency is to say, well, those were made to those people. They were not made to me until you realize that whenever God makes a promise to his people, the people that come after that always reiterate that promise. See, this is why when God called Moses, he referred back to a promise he made to Abraham. I am the God of your father Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Now here's my promise to you. In other words, the people that come after you, in other words, your children, in other words, your friends, actually live in the light of the promises that God has given you. You believe them not just for you. You believe them for the people that come after you. I mean, in a sense, God pays to them what he owes you for believing. So it's a powerful thing to hear God's promises. But the trouble with them, church, is that they are always made in circumstances that totally defy those promises. You look around and nothing is lining up with this and you are forced to choose which narrative do I believe? Do I believe the wait for it facts as they appear or do I believe what God still says? And some of you, the more intellectual type, you'll tend to say, well, I'm not sure that that's what those things mean. In other words, you want to stay religious, but you can't believe that. And so you're caught somewhere between being religious and believing something that sounds preposterous. And the way out for you is just to say, well, that's not what that verse means. What if it is? <laughs> Imagine. <laughs> what if Jesus meant just that? So God will make a promise and then Christ will ratify it. He'll embody it. He becomes it. In other words, everything God has promised you, he did in Christ. Christ is the link 
from the promises in heaven to our mess on earth. If God promised to guide you, listen to you, heal you, cleanse you, raise you from the dead, Jesus is proof of concept. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's beautiful. But it's like all of this stops until the people of God say, Amen. God will say it. Jesus will embody it. But nothing happens until we say, Amen. They told me after the first service, the American sign language for Amen is a gavel with a thumb up. <laughs> it's a way of confirming, okay, the judgment's in. And it's looking up. Nothing happens till we say, Amen. Are you there? So this sermon's almost over. I told you. Here's what I'm saying. In between a promise made and the fulfillment of it is a gap. And in that gap, a lot can happen. Things will come up and things will go wrong. And when they do, they will defy the promise that was made. But in that gap, we have the freedom and the power to choose a response. Our response will either be no or it will be amen. No is a way of resistance, pessimism, obstruction. No means you can't have it, you can't do it, it won't happen, and it won't work. And so no withdraws. No withholds. Whenever no starts to pray, it always assumes the answer is no. And so the supplicant is left begging God to do what she presumes he doesn't want to do because the answer is no. Whenever no hears a promise, it thinks hard work. Make this happen. Buckle down. But because no always comes from a place of deficiency, scarcity, we never can perform enough. And so we are always chasing promises instead of believing them. Always overwhelmed. But there are some of us who have learned to say, Amen. And amen doesn't mean, I like it, it is good, let's go. Amen, amen means, 
God has brought it, and I accept. In fact, I may not like it, and I may not know where I am going, but to say amen is to leave the territory that is tightly nailed down and to wander into a place I have never been with no assurance other than this. The next step I take will proceed out of this one. And in this one, God has already been present. So he will be present again tomorrow. Amen means it is so. I affirm it. Nine years ago this time, it was August, we lost a really good friend of mine and a member of our congregation, Ross Hoffman. He was killed tragically in the back of his, in the backyard, working in a trench. I was in House of Hope. I got a call. They said we we're taking him in. I drove like fury to get to the ER when I got there. They already had him in the back. Karen, I don't know if you're here in this service. Karen, his wife, was there sitting in the back. I went into the back. She in one place, I in another. We watched for more than an hour while four or five different EMTs, doctors, tried to resuscitate him. They took shifts. They had to take shifts because they were wearing themselves out. For more than an hour, they did this thinking they could bring him back. I would release every 10, 15 minutes from the emergency room and I would go out to the lobby where five and then 10 and then over 20 people were starting to gather. They'd heard the news. I was the liaison. I would go back and say, they're doing this, they're gonna try this. And I remember the moment when they finally released him and said, we can't. He's gone. I had to go back out into that lobby with now more than 20 people gathered in a circle. And I didn't know what to say, so I just, just shook my head. And um, it, was, uh, it was my pattern in the, at that time to gather people into a circle and everybody hold hands and we're going to sing the doxology because when we sing the doxology we're going to get to the amen and I couldn't do it nobody in the room knew this but I was protesting I was angry as I this is not right this is wrong I wasn't wasn't angry at God I was just angry at at it but I could not ratify this And um, I sat down two, three days later to write the homily. And I remember hearing a voice in my head say, you got to sing the amen. And I argued with this for a long time. But finally, when I discovered that amen doesn't mean it's good and I like it. Amen means it is so. And I am in Christ and Christ is in us. I embrace what I hate.
We gathered in this room one morning, wall-to-wall people, lines out to the parking lot. And at the end of the message, we sang the doxology. And we savored the amen. 